Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin, and I'm bringing you another distributed operations episode, but I'm joined by our Intrepid podcast editors, Leah West and Amar Amara Singham. Leah, I have to say you are actually high above the Rideau River. Uh, Amar, you're in the suburbs of Toronto, and I'm um, in my basement. <laughs> um, that's where we're at. And today we want to bring you this episode because there's been a series of events that have been happening in uh, northeastern Syria with regards to the Kurdish camps and Trump has announced a policy whereby he will be pulling out U.S. troops that have effectively been serving as a buffer between Turkey and the Kurds who are also holding around 10,000 fighters in that region. And by fighters, I mean, of course, foreign fighters or ISIS uh, affiliated detainees and their families. So I should point out it's Tuesday, October 8th. So maybe a day or so before this episode is actually able to come out. But what is really interesting, is, of course, is that Leah and Amar, you just got back from the actual Kurdish camps because I don't know. I like traveling to Florida and you like traveling to conflict zones. Um, but, you know, let's take advantage of that situation. So I, I thought what we might do today is just talk a little bit about the context overall. Uh, we can talk about the camps themselves. Uh, it's my understanding you actually witnessed a riot in the camp. So that, that's fun. Um, and, and then what you basically did while you were there, the kind of situations with the Kurds. Uh, you actually spoke to some of the Canadian detainees. So your impressions of that. And then, of course, some of the broader implications for uh, Canada's policy or what I should probably describe as a lack of policy, because uh, we don't really seem to be doing anything about this, even though the sands are shifting fairly quickly. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I was wondering, perhaps, uh, Amar, do you want to start us off with some context of what's happened in the region, say, it's, say, say in the last year or so? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this year saw, of course, the uh, end of the ISIS caliphate, uh, the kind of uh, dozens or <clears throat> tens of thousands of uh, men, women and children who came out of the last uh, villages in Deir Azor, uh, particularly in Bagus al-Fuqani, where um, I think a lot more uh, people were in that final kind of pocket of ISIS control than was anticipated by the West or, uh, or even the Kurds. Uh, so though they came out, uh, the men and women were separated. The men went to a series of prisons uh, in Hasaka and other areas. Um, and the women were taken to uh, several kind of uh, makeshift IDP camps in Ain Issa, uh, in uh, Al-Hol and Al-Roj. Uh, and we'll, we can kind of get into the differences in some of these camps uh, in a second. But that's kind of the end of ISIS context. Um, and then at the same time, what 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 was happening in tandem was that Turkey was getting a little agitated um, and it, it, it tried to form, uh, with the help of the United States, a kind of buffer zone uh, at the border region, um, which, uh, you know, at the time wasn't, uh, you know, a major news story, but it's starting to become a major news story because of events of this week. But what, but what that basically meant was um, the Turks basically made it known that we're worried about the YPG at the border uh, in Syria and we'd like a, a kind of um, peace corridor, as they called it, between uh, us and the YPG. Um, and so the U.S. kind of agreed to that. They agreed to uh, kind of helicopter patrols of the region. Uh, the YPG, for its part, dismantled all of its fighting positions in the area and pulled back um, and kind of left themselves vulnerable. Um, and, and it was supposed to kind of end there to say, you know, Turkey's going to move a bunch of uh, Syrian refugees back into Syria, and this buffer zone exists, and, and everyone just kind of lives happily ever after. Um, but of course, all of that is now 
thrown for a loop by Trump's kind of hasty decision to uh, perhaps pull out uh, American troops from the area. But we can we can get into that as well uh, as we go on. And just to be clear, uh, the Turks regard the Kurds who are there as either supporters or active members of a terrorist group that have been part of an insurgency within Turkey for a few decades. Right. And so the, the Syrian Democratic Forces uh, is a kind of conglomerate uh, under which the YPG exists, which is a, 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 a Kurdish force, which also has Arab militias in it. Um, but according to the Turks, um, all of these organizations are kind of allied with the PKK, which uh, it considers to be a terrorist organization um, uh, vying for kind of a separate homeland right on the border of Turkey. And so uh, they've been kind of uneasy with Kurdish kind of control of the area following the defeat of ISIS uh, for some time. So this this movement has gone from basically, uh, you know, a militia force to actually running a government right at Turkish, Turkey's border. And so uh, Turkey's, you know, expressed its discomfort, I guess, with that, with that scenario. And I'll just add, um, so part of the, the idea of the buffer zone, as Amar mentioned, is to resettle um, largely Arab refugees that are in Turkey right now. Um, there's 3,000 refugees from the Syrian uh, conflict that are in Turkey, and Turkey um, is tired of hosting them and wants to resettle them in this buffer zone along the border. But the impact of that um, from the Kurdish perspective is the dilution of um, the autonomous region that Kurdish controls, that is uh, the you know, largely Kurdish population, um, which would have a, an effect of diluting kind of Kurdish general control over the area. And that's something that is beneficial to Turkey in general um, and as well to the Assad regime um, that governs uh, the Syrian state. Right. So this is a pretty complicated picture. So we have a situation where, you know, the Kurds are losing perhaps, uh, you know, I, I don't think the, the Kurds would have expected the United States to stay forever, but um, presumably just a sudden abrupt leaving is going to be very detrimental to their position, given uh, the fact that the, the they're not exactly friends with the Syrians. They're definitely not friends with the Turks. And there's other players in the region who would be quite happy for them to uh, not either be there or for them to kind of lose control over the areas that they have. Um, and that's kind of interesting. I mean, when you were uh, speaking with the Kurds, did you get any sense that they were, you know, looking to other countries for support? Could they broker a deal with Assad uh, or, or other countries in the region if the United States, say, wasn't going to protect them in the long run? Was this an issue while you were there? Um, I, I don't think they anticipated the Americans leaving anytime soon, particularly with, you know, close to 80,000 uh, men, women and children in the camps and prisons, uh, you know, with, with, with variety of countries refusing to take back their citizens and so on. So I think uh, they recognized that as long as that was the status quo, that they were kind of protected uh, in, in the region by American presence. And American presence is quite you know, important and strong uh, and contributes to the stability of, of, of that area, particularly post-war. Um, but of course, um, that's under a scenario where you have a normal president uh, who thinks things through and understands realities on the ground, um, and, and which is not always the case. <clears throat> and so, you know, right from December of last year, um, Trump threatened to pull out, uh, <laughs> to pull out of the region, surprised the Pentagon, surprised his officials, surprised the region, surprised the allies in the region. Um, and then we have the same scenario happening this week where kind of all of a sudden without communicating to anyone, uh, including the Kurds, including uh, his own defense department, which came out and said, this is a bad idea. And, and, and so it, what, what, what 
ends up happening is I think the Kurds are becoming quite uneasy. They're uh, realizing that this president in particular, and perhaps this administration, uh, cannot be trusted to keep its word, um, won't always be there to kind of have their back, even though there are kind of officials in the government who, of course, understand the situation on the ground and want to uh, make sure that doesn't kind of spiral out of control. The only person that President Trump seems to have consulted about the withdrawal of U.S. forces from this region in northeastern Syria seems to be President Erdogan of Turkey. Um, and the problem there is that it um, it potentially has the impact of emboldening Turkey, um, that uh, the statement from the White House seemed to be very supportive of Turkey moving into the region, um, which if you're the Kurds, will be seen as an invasion. And um, while we were there, um, there was a Wall Street Journal article that came out that discussed concerns of security officials that there was rumblings that uh, the United States would be withdrawing. And in response to that, while we were there, there were some statements from the security, uh, Syrian Defense Forces saying that uh, you know a Turkish move across the border would be met with force. So I, I don't think at that time there was an expectation that this was going to be happening a day later. But there were strong statements on the ha- behalf of the Syrian Defense Forces that uh, movement of the Turkish uh, of Turkish forces across the border would be met with corresponding force. So what we've learned here is that the, the Kurds are in a pretty precarious position. You said that they are holding approximately 80,000 prisoners in the camps that they're yep. responsible for. Uh, they are surrounded by people who really don't like them. And their only support is from a really fickle ally who seems to be uh, changing its position on a very random basis every six months or so. So with that being said, we, you know, having painted this context, can you guys maybe talk a little bit about the camps themselves, what they're like? Um, you know, for those who, uh, the vast majority of Intrepid podcast listeners who have not been to a Kurdish prisoner camp, can you please talk about what that is actually like? So we visited two of the major camps. Um, there's one camp in particular that's actually holding the vast majority of women and children. Um, in Al Khul, there are 70,000 women and children. Um, as part of that camp, there is a separate annex or the foreigner annex where there's about 11,000, or Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, um, um, foreign individuals who traveled there and their children. In that annex, um, what we're seeing is a strong resurgence of enforcement of ISIS ideology. Um, And this is something that we actually witnessed um, while we were there. We were there um, on the 30th of September to um, attempt to interview Canadian women who were in the camps to learn about their conditions in life in the camps. When um, SDF or, sorry, Kurdish police um, guarding the camps broke up, what they say um, was a meeting where women hardliners were trying to enforce Sharia law, their version of a Sharia law, on other women inside the camps. The uh, version from the Kurds is that they were attempting to actually physically punish a woman. Um, this is in the context of the fact that the day before, a badly, um, uh, well, it seemed to be tortured body of a woman had been found. Um, and it wasn't, no one was quite sure how long she had been dead before they found her body. Um, and so the meeting was broken up and women in that meeting were arrested. We actually witnessed the women and their children being escorted out of the main camp area to where they would be held in a prison. Um, the other women responded 
obviously to this. Uh, some women spoke in English and spoke to us and said um, that they were simply trying to learn. Their version of events is that they were just trying to teach each other and maintain their understanding of their faith. And that um, as a result of this, women were um, being arrested. Um, this demonstration kind of uh, in response to the arrest grew. Um, eventually, it resulted in Kurdish members who were either police or uh, SDF forces kind of uh, trying to break up the protest with uh, firing weapons um, in the area of the women. However, the women were quite emboldened and one actually walked, continued to walk towards them in spite of, of the, the fire and um, the protest continued. What we ended up seeing and we were escorted out as um, a large section of the camp was being surrounded by um, soldiers and police with AK-47s and armed vehicles with 50 millimeter cannons on them being fired were moving into the camp. And the important thing to remember about all of this is that as we were there standing in between SDF and women who were upset, children were everywhere. Um, they were being held by their mothers. They were standing by their sides. They were playing in tents. And not more than five minutes later, there are 50 millimeter cannons being shot into the area. Um, eventually, the after we left, the protest um, seemed to have been expanded. There were claims that women inside the camps had small weapons or small guns and actually fired them. Um, and ultimately, one woman was killed. Seven were injured, and that was confirmed by um, Médecins Sans Frontières um, staff who were actually inside the camp and got caught in all of this. So this is life in the camps now, especially in that element. The following day, a 20-year-old man was killed um, as well. Not all of the camps are like this. Raj Camp, which we also visited, is smaller, about 1,800 people. It's much more controlled and contained. Inisa, similar. But especially after a statement, and Amar might touch on this a bit, um, released by al-Baghdadi, kind of calling on individuals in the camps to, you know, stand up and push back um, has really emboldened the women inside the camps. And I would imagine that the, the Trump news will only further um, agitate and embolden um, those who still are firmly um, aligned with ISIS that are in the camps. So basically you're painting a picture of kind of like internal policing using uh, by hardliners who are trying to enforce, as you say, like they're a very, very strict version of Sharia law, instability, armed police, the use of torture and violence as a part of trying to, you know, these groups trying to enforce their codes, and a, the fact that they're being egged on by the Islamic State, which, you know, may not have a caliphate now, but now, but still very much has a spokes figure who can encourage this kind of behavior. Uh, I guess the only question I have for you is uh, on that story is that, so that was what took place in the camp for the foreigners or yeah. for the uh, normal camp? So it's all one camp, but this was within a separate section of the camp um, that's fenced off um, and separate, separated from those who are Syrian and Iraqi um, women and children who are in the other part portion of the camp. Um, but actually the death of the 20-year-old of the seems to have occurred in the, um, the local section of the camp. And and what are the living conditions like? How how like are are there houses? Is it just tents? Are there other cooking facilities? Like what what are these camps like? Um, I mean, I think particularly whole now is. Uh, I mean, it's, I would describe it as an urgent situation, right? There's there's uh, three field hospitals. There's uh, malnutrition. There's dirty water. 
there's periodic, uh, you know, almost daily instances of violence now in, in, in some form or another. And as Leah touched on, it, it, it's a sea of children, right? It's 55% of the camp is, is children under the age of 12. And so, you know, uh, as, as, and Leah has some pictures of, of, of these kids. They, they pop out of tents. They're behind rocks. They're, you know, sitting under uh, canopies. They're, they're just everywhere and they're running around. And um, um, it, it's not an ideal situation uh, for the vast majority of these children. Um, added to that, of course, is that a lot of these hardline women are telling these children, particularly the older ones, that the the 400 SDF guards, you know, that are outside the camp uh, keeping them are the ones that killed their father, are the ones that kind of put us here to begin with. And so um, you walk into the camp and you're automatically um, met with suspicion, right? And you're automatically met with uh, kind of hardline stairs and, and, and people throwing stones and our fixer himself, uh, as soon as he walked in, um, got got kind of several stones thrown at him, um, and and so this is kind of the daily situation in the camp. It's it's a sea of children, um, and with kind of escalating instances of violence. Um, the twenty uh, year old who got stabbed uh, it was it was the day after. Uh, so after the September thirtieth riot, the camp was shut down to foreigners and foreigner uh, to outsiders, and so we couldn't get back in. Um, but the next day, uh, we, we were kind of waiting for the camp to reopen. And then there was other news that uh, this Iraqi 20-year-old who appears to have been a kind of earlier refugee from from uh, from Syria or from Iraq, I mean, um, was stabbed 60 times by kind of hardline Iraqi women who didn't like the fact that he was anti-ISIS and, and was kind of uh, talking back to them and so on. Um, so the Iraqi section, the Syrian section, the foreign section, um, all uh, are kind of becoming much more dangerous as time goes on as, as the situation is kind of allowed to fester by the international community. It seems to be because you guys are saying, and just to underscore the point, because the extremists are able to increasingly assert control in these camps. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the, the, the kind of Hezbollah squad, um, uh, so the Islamic State had had a kind of uh, Hezbollah core, of course, which is the morality police of the, of, the, of the Islamic State. And a lot of them are in the camps now. And these are kind of Russian women, Tunisian women, Chechen women, um, who kind of run the show. Um, and and you, you can kind of see they run the show because when a lot of these women first went to the camp, they weren't in niqabs, they weren't covering themselves up, they were kind of expressing openly how disillusioned they were with ISIS. Um, but now you now they're all covered head to toe again. Um, and they're, you know, they find it very hard to speak out. They're very nervous. Um, and, and part of that is because they go and give a media interview and then they're harassed when they come back to their tent by these kind of hardline women. And so, and, and, and the SDF just doesn't have the resources to handle this many people uh, indefinitely. There's three things I want to add briefly to provide some context about the state of the camps. A hole was originally meant for 20,000 people. It, it expanded um, for 40,000. There are 70,000 people here now. So you can imagine it is all tent living. There is um, a market of sorts. So women are allowed to have money and to purchase things. But after violence like this, Part of the way that the camp deals with that is by shutting things down and tightening the grip over what's moving in and out. We also saw last week that there were was an attempt to um, smuggle women out by people who were dressed up as security forces. So in order to clamp down on this, they clamp down on what's going in and out, which means they clamp down on water, they clamp down on cleaning, they clamp down on fresh food. So the as the situation inside gets tenser, the humanitarian situation also gets worse. And the other thing um, that we actually heard repeatedly from Syrian officials, and we can talk about this a bit more, was that these children 
are being raised by hardliners. They are the next generation of hardliners. They know nothing else. There is no education. There is no outside force that can dissuade them from what they're being taught. I saw children who I believe to be, it's hard to tell exactly their age, tiny children in full uh, niqab. That's, it, it was incredible to see. And um, the fear and the, the valid fear is that this is the next generation of ISIS. And if it, nothing is done, we are basically condemning these children to, um, to a life of ISIS ideology. If I can just say just one thing about the Baghdadi speech, which I think a lot of Western analysts, you know, because he's he's, he's uh, spoke fairly recently and then spoke fairly recently before that. And we kind of dismiss it as, you know, here's the leader of ISIS kind of waxing poetic about about defeat and trying to justify defeat and so on. Um, it was kind of somewhat surprising for me how much of an impact it had inside the camps, um, because I think, um, you know, all of these women are, are, are still on Telegram channels or getting uh, news from the outside. Um, and I think the Baghdadi speech of kind of mid-September, mid-September of this year, uh, literally, what, three weeks, two weeks before we landed in the camps, had a profound impact. I think a lot of women were galvanized by it. Uh, they recognized that, oh, ISIS leadership hasn't abandoned us. Um, here's the caliph himself calling for a prison break and calling for uh, men to come rescue their women from these camps. And so uh, I think part of what we saw on September 30th and, and going, af- uh, going forward is that these women uh, feel like they have to live up to that, right? They have to live up to this kind of image that Baghdadi is is presenting of who these women are. And so they have to kind of show the world that they're carrying on the torch and that they're representing ISIS even while, uh, even while in captivity. And so um, it was, it was kind of um, startling actually how quickly after the speech, you saw some real impact on the ground and real violence on the ground because then kind of directly related to that. So the one point, again, that I would underscore that agrees with that is if you look at the rise of the Islamic State, it had so much to do with prison camps, right? It was born in the prison camps, really, of uh, the, in the fallout of the 2003 Iraq war. ISIS really comes on the scene when it engages in this prison break spree that really kind of starts at the end of 2012 and, and goes into 2013. I mean, the fact that like prisons have really kind of been such a part of the Islamic State's story for a long time, it doesn't surprise me that, that you know, that, you know, and rather than seeing the prison as, as kind of a defeat, that they would just kind of see it as the next phase uh, before moving on to uh, either a rebirth of the movement or something else. Is, is that the sense that you're getting? Yes. Um, Realistically, we hear a lot, especially from Donald Trump, that ISIS is defeated. And while the caliphate and the attempt of ISIS to hold a state is certainly um, no longer an issue, ISIS still does have control over certain pockets of territory. There are certain areas within the region where ISIS still has uh, a say on how things are run. There's also um, continued um, sporadic attacks cell-like attacks that continue to exist. So they're still there. And the image I had after being at the camps and witnessing the riots is that ISIS is alive and well. They're just behind precariously guarded fences right now. And those fences are being guarded by the SDF and the Kurdish forces, the exact people that have just been abandoned by the U.S. forces. When you talked to the Kurdish guards who were there, um, what was your sense of this? Like, that, what, was, what were they saying about what surrounded them? 
I mean, I think I think the uh, spokesman uh, Mustafa Bali, uh, as well as the SDF spokesman um, Dr. Karim Abdul or Abdul Karim Omar, were all kind of very well aware. I think they were used to it. We, you know, they, when we went to see them, they were just like, "Hey, dude, did did you hear what happened yesterday?" As if it was you know just nothing. <laughs> um, uh, but so I think they're used to this violence. I think they see it a lot, um, and I think they recognize that it's a it, it it's kind of a precarious situation for them. That they're not going to have a whole lot of control over, um, and and before, I guess this week, um, it, it you know there were a lot of reporting that SDF kind of generally avoids the foreign foreigner section, foreigner annex, um, that they uh, go in when there's emergencies, but they don't they, they stop doing kind of uh, tent to tent searches, um, and and so there there are weapons in these camps, right? Um, it, it was funny as as I was kind of walking to this uh, supposed breakup of this uh, Hizbah meeting, um, there was a little child with probably an eight inch blade kind of randomly cutting a used water bottle, right? And and I'm like, how did this child get this massive blade? <laughs> what, and what what is happening? You know, it's it it is uh, it, it's just so normalized. I think that that uh, sometimes it shocks shocks outsider eyes. Um, um, but I mean, it is the situation. I don't think most of these Kurdish officials recognize that they're not going to, you know, they, they can't really um, solve this problem. It's really up to the international community to repatriate um, a lot of their citizens. I guess this would bring us to a, a good point to discuss. You guys were there. You were not there as researchers. You were there as consultants to Global News. You were with uh, Stuart Bell, and you were supporting his his reporting and his coverage. Uh, do I have that correct? Yeah. Right. So what what did you guys do? You witnessed all these things, but what else did you do while you were there? I mean, we were... We, we were present during the interviews with the prisoners, uh, with the two Canadians we spoke with, uh, Abu Ridwan uh, and Safraz Ali, um, as well as, uh, you know, we couldn't get back into whole camp because of the rioting on rioting on September 30th and, and, the, and the murder the next day. Um, but uh, we went to Raqqa. We um, get, got a real sense of kind of the situation in Raqqa um, and, and, and the kind of fear there as well. We, we, we weren't allowed by our fixers to kind of stay in one situation or stay in one place longer than five to ten minutes. Um, and as, so as Leah was saying, you know, there's a real sense that there's a active sleeper cells and um, ISIS kind of intelligence uh, operatives watching for foreigners um, and, and kind of keeping an eye on what's going on in the city after liberation right and and uh we asked to go for example or whether we were allowed to go to parts of derazor uh they basically said no uh it's too dangerous um and so uh they they kind of recognized that there are sections of of syria which are um kind of active sleeper cell situations that they can't really uh take foreigners into for their own safety um, i'll just uh, jump in right there though and say um and it's important to note that that is not all of northeastern syria um and uh, especially not where um, the camps are um, or where we were staying, other than when we moved to Raqqa, um, which is uh, farther inside northeastern Syria, away from the Iraqi border. The situation, I, I felt largely secure throughout. People are going about their daily lives. They're trying to rebuild. Um, and I just want to say that point only because... Um, the Canadian government has reiterated or their basis for not providing any kind of consular services in this region is because of the lack of safety. And yeah. it, the lack of safety is, is isolated to certain regions and not uh, the regions uh, we visited or needed to visit to speak with Canadians. Right. 
So, but that was something you guys did. You you spoke to the, some of the Canadians being detained there. Can you say what that was like? What you found out? Yeah, I mean, um, the, I mean, the main person I wanted to speak to uh, was was Abu Ridwan or Mohammed Khalifa, who's the voice of the Flames of War videos, as well as uh, all of the kind of English language outputs from 2014 onwards. Um, and the kind of image presented of him with previous interviews uh, was kind of very different than the person we encountered. He had, you know, just had lunch, uh, rice and vegetables, he said, was speaking in, was speaking with us kind of openly. He refused to go on camera, um, which, of course, disappointed Stuart. But uh, we, 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 of course, didn't put him on camera. Um, and he kind of spoke openly about his upbringing, um, his kind of life inside the Islamic State, his uh, media uh, role role as a kind of translator and and uh, voice of the Islamic State, and then why he kind of stuck with the organization till the very end. You know, he he said he wasn't particularly happy with his role because he wanted to kind of do more and do different things, but he recognized that he had to sacrifice his kind of individual desires or individual uh, desires for the for the sake of the whole. And and the Islamic State wanted a a, a kind of vibrant media arm, uh, even towards the end of the even towards the end of the conflict and he kind of stepped forward to uh do that role and have that have that kind of impact so um we also spoke with one canadian woman um kimberly pullman um she doesn't have any children in the um in syria she actually has two canadian or two children back in north america who are older she's actually the wife of one of the two that we spoke to safra's ali and her her interview was guarded rightfully i think but she seemed to be committed to the idea of um if she were to ever return she to contributing to the idea of um speaking out against isis and uh terrorist ideology and she fully accepted that uh she should face the consequences of the canadian judicial system which i thought i wasn't i wasn't necessarily expecting so that was uh, interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but did she ever say what her role was? Did she just go over to have a family or, or was she actually a, an active, is there any indication she was an active participant in the conflict? Kimberly is uh, an educated and well-spoken woman. And I think she understood that anything that she says to the media could be potentially used against her um, for future prosecutions. So she didn't really want to get in with us those elements of her participation. Um, and we, we really did have a limited uh, window with her, unfortunately, sure. but she uh, did say that she had spoken with uh, allied, um, she didn't mention uh, allied police or intelligence services and given a more detailed account of her time in Syria and her and what drove her to go to Syria. So you spoke to three Canadians who were there, one being more open, uh, one being more guarded. Who was the third? The third was uh, Safraz Ali, uh, who's kind of a Trinidadian Canadian. He's been interviewed a few times uh, under different uh, aliases, but um, he allowed us to use his name. Um, and and so he 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 and Kimberly are an interesting batch because I think they 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 kind of went for what they say are humanitarian reasons. They went to kind of help uh, local militant organizations against the Assad regime. Um, eventually kind of joined the Islamic State because the the group that they were with, you know, also joined, which is the same thing that um, Abu Ridwan said, actually. 
Um, and, I, and, and you know, Kimberly Pullman is very interesting because she's in her 40s. She traveled when she was in her 40s and, and, and argues that, you know, within two weeks of being there, she wanted to leave um, and, and kind of had a hard time leaving. Safraz uh, claims that he was imprisoned by uh, the Islamic State at least twice uh, and tortured um, for his views and his kind of speaking out. Um, so I think, you know, these are kind of individual stories, but it, it, it kind of brings home the point that not, you know, that all of us have been saying uh, from the beginning is that not all of these guys and girls are, you know, left for the same reasons, had the same experiences, um, and they're going to want to obviously leave for very different reasons as well. Some are diehard committed, like Abu Ridwan. Um, others uh, seem like from the very beginning they were disillusioned, and for whatever reason they weren't able to leave or um, thought they couldn't try to leave at risk of, um, you know, being imprisoned or killed. And so we're going to, if, 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 if and when these guys do come back and guys and girls do come back, um, it, it's going to be hodgepodge of stories. I think there's going to be a, a wide range of experiences and stories that they tell. There's going to be um, a whole host of children that also come back with varying degrees of trauma and exposure to violence. Some were born in the camps after surrender. Others were, um, other, others are 10 or 11, 12 years old. Um, and so our kind of approach to this as well is going to be, have to be similarly um, varied, I guess, and nuanced. So that actually brings us then to kind of like the part, you know, just to kind of wrap up the podcast, the broader implications of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Amar, Leah, you've both been very vocal in your belief that we should repatriate our, our fighters uh, for, for various reasons. There, it does not seem to be the political will to do so. I mean, if I just draw upon my experience from being, say, someone from Oshawa, it, it's hard. It's not that hard to see why that's the case in the sense that, you know, the picture you've painted of these individuals, even though they're varied and, and different, and in some case children, is that there are hardliners in this camp and that these are very scary people uh, at the end of the day, that th- these are people who may, ha- you know, they, they contributed to one of the most egregious, dangerous foreign fighting forces we've ever seen, uh, certainly in, in recent decades. And they may not, you know, all feel bad about their participation. And as, you know, they may in fact feel egged on by someone like uh, Baghdadi. So, you know, I'm sympathetic, obviously, to what you're saying. But for those who don't think we should repatriate these people who, let's face it, are, some of them are going to be dangerous. What what do you have to say to that? So I think... The, the thing I hear time and time again or is thrown at me on Twitter is they made, the, they made their bed, they can lie in it. They made this choice, let them face the consequences. And the reality is that that's actually not the choice. It's Canada deals with it or the Kurdish people deal with them. These people aren't running around free. The Kurds are responsible currently for these, for these Canadians. The same people who Canadians traveled to victimize are now responsible for expending $700,000 a day to keep them safe while they're facing potentially an invasion from their stated enemy. And if anything goes wrong in these camps, if these individuals don't leave, if they break out, if they uh, eventually um, have to be released, they're in their backyard again. So it's not a they made their bed, they can lie in it choice. It's not our problem. It's either Canada's problem or it's the Kurdish people's problem, the people of Syria and Iraq's problem. And I think Canada has a responsibility to take responsibility for the Canadian citizens 
and what they've done to these individuals. Um, the, the idea that it's Canada or it's on them is just a completely false dichotomy. Um, and it's an easy thing to say, but it doesn't reflect reality. And of course, it's, it's worth noting that it wasn't just the United States that was allied with the Kurds. Canada was supporting the Kurds as well. It was a big part yeah. of our training mission in that region. Amar, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think th- this kind of argument, um, you know, there's a whole slew of arguments that are pushed back uh, against against the repatriation argument, which I, you know, I, I can sympathize with um, if, if you're... Uh, if, if you're talking about this organization, because I think, you know, a group like ISIS um, took them, took the region by storm. They, they very quickly conquered uh, city upon city, um, made these communities, um, you know, victimized these communities to no end, uh, took Yazidi slaves, um, took the homes of a lot of, uh, mu- um, a lot of Muslims they considered to be, you know, uh, apostates or spies um, and, and, you know, kickstarted the basic refugee problem that we're seeing now. Um, and so I think, as, as Leah was saying, I, I don't think kind of allowing the situation to fester um, with, with our citizens kind of contributing to that whole scenario is the moral choice, is, is the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of, I guess, decent thing to do. The last thing yeah. I'll say is that even when we were talking with um, Syrian officials, they, they, re- they need help from the international community. They need help. And if it's not going to be repatriation, we need to help them secure the and pay for these facilities. This is unsustainable. Like these people are trying to rebuild their communities that were bombed, completely decimated in some cases. They're trying to rebuild while at the same time having to sustain these camps with very little outside help from the international community. Allegedly, uh, 5% of the funding for the camps only comes from the international community, which is egregious because they're holding individuals who came from the international community and threatened the international community. And we're asking these individuals who, while we were there, were digging out mass graves at the same time trying to rebuild schools and homes so that they can get back to their lives. Like this is ludicrous that they are doing this alone. So do you, do you have, I mean, the very last thought here, what, what should Canada do? Um, You've talked about repatriation. You've talked about supporting the Kurds. Can you, um, what would you like, you know, we're in the middle of an election, but let's say it's the day after, you know, new minister of public safety. What, what are you advising? I think, I mean, waiting for the election is fine. The day after the election, I think we need to start a, a process by which all of these individuals, particularly our uh, our citizens, numbering close to 40 um, men, women, and children are brought back to Canada. Um, the, the kids need help. Uh, and if you want to prosecute the men uh, and the women, um, that process should be kickstarted as well. Um, and just kind of... Uh, bring the citizens back. That's really the only, it's really the only choice there is. I think particularly now with the Americans potentially leaving, uh, with Turkey on the border pushing uh, south, uh, the, the situation, even if you set aside the moral argument, um, even from a strictly national security perspective, it's getting untenable. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't think there's really any other choice than, to, than for every country to start uh, repatriating their citizens. I, I, I 100% agree with that. If the domestic political will is just not there. And I'd be really saddened if that was the case. Then Canada has to do a few other things. They need to uh, provide financial support uh, to the international community, if not directly to the Kurds, because that's complicated. But 
to UNHCR to assist in the facilitation and support of these camps so that there can be some kind of quality of life there um, for the growing children um, in the camps. And Canada needs to get on board with uh, the coalition of European courts who are trying to establish some sort of hybrid tribunal or international court to prosecute these individuals. Now, ideally, um, our Canadians would come home and be prosecuted here because we have the laws on the books that can do it. Um, and as Amar and I write in a piece that's coming out, um, the individuals who are currently in camps are not the hard cases for prosecution. I think they're actually the easy ones. But uh, if we're not going to do that, then we need to step up to the plate and um, do what Canada has historically done best, which is uh, contribute to multilateral efforts for justice and restorative uh, peace and development. Well, guys, you paint a very uh, scary, sad, and uh, frustrating picture. Uh, thank you for sharing it. Thank you for taking the time to, to come on the podcast. And um, I'm sure this will not be the last time we're talking about this issue. So unfortunately, I'll probably be talking to you again soon on it and not fluffy kittens, which <laughs> is, is my hope of one day, but not today. Not today. <laughs> probably today not tomorrow not either. No. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.